morning, everybody. My name is Tim Porter, one of the pastors here at Faith Community Church, and uh, welcome to worship here at Faith Community. If this is one of your first times here, thank you so much for joining with us, and it's our hope and prayer that as we gather together, you will get a little taste of the goodness of Jesus and uh, be strengthened in your trust and maybe even awakened to a relationship with him online. I hope you're doing well. Uh, We miss you. We look forward to seeing you when summer is over and uh, we're all back together again. And if you're checking us out online right now, now for one of the first times. I just highly recommend to take that step to come join us in person uh, very soon. It'd be really great to meet you. Uh, Come up and uh, say hi uh, to me or Pastor Tim Prince when we're preaching. We'd love to meet you and welcome you to Faith Community. Uh, we are right now in a series called He is Greater, and it's about Jesus being greater. If you stack anything up against Jesus, Jesus is greater. And we're learning from a book in the Bible called the Book of Hebrews, or the Letter of Hebrews, and the author is going to great pains to compare and contrast uh, what we call the, the worship and the, the sacrifices that were described and, in the Old Testament and participated in by the people of Israel throughout the majority of um, the Bible's history. And Jesus says that he fulfills all that. And the author is comparing and contrasting uh, the sacrificial system, the temple, the tabernacle, the type of worship, the high priest, uh, the killing of animals for sacrifice for sins, all that kind of stuff, comparing and contrasting it with Jesus and saying, Jesus is greater. And we've been on that theme about the tabernacle and the high priest for some time in this series, at least in the last couple weeks. Today, we're going to focus here on a specific element of who Jesus is, a truth about who Jesus is, and it's a truth that, you know, is, it feels um, antiquated, it feels a little out of date, maybe a little barbaric, a little old-fashioned, but it's true, and to disbelieve it leads into all different kinds of despair. Today, we're going to talk about the final judgment. Yeehaw! Right? Yeah, just when I came to church to talk about the final judgment. But it's so important. It was the final judgment that one day we will stand before Jesus. Every human being as an individual will stand before Jesus was an essential teaching of the first followers of Jesus, the apostles. To believe it creates freedom. To believe what the Bible teaches about it creates freedom in life. It creates hope, or as our passage is going to talk about, an eager anticipation. How are you doing with eager anticipation today? Maybe there's something about the final judgment we need to rediscover and rebelieve. That's what we're looking at today. We're going to be in Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28. It's found on page 1006 in the Bibles in front of you. If you'd like to turn there, it'll also be on the screens. Feel free to jump on to your mobile device as well. Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. And we're we're finishing up chapter 9 today, and then next week, Tim Prince will take us into chapter 10. And then we'll move into a new series. We'll say more about that next week. Hebrews 9, 23. Thus it was necessary for copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. If you're like wondering, like, what in the world are we talking about? Go back and listen to the other sermons, okay? 
and uh, you'll, you'll see more about that. Okay. Now, 24, for Christ has entered not into, uh, not into holy places made with hands, that is the temple or the tabernacle, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself. And Jesus did that now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, that is Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, that last, or that second last verse, verse 27, we're going to spend a lot of time in today, that it's appointed for man to die and then to experience judgment. Then after that comes judgment. This is a hard statement to our culture in particular, humanity in general, but our particular in, cult, in culture, because we don't like judgment. We don't like it. At least we don't think we like it. You know, Lifetime Fitness, right? They've got judgment-free zones, right? Is it Lifetime Fitness? No, Planet Fitness. Planet Fitness has judgment-free zones. You can go work out, no one's going to judge you. Well, haven't you just judged judging, right? How many times have you heard somebody say this week, not, don't judge, just listen. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. We despise judgment, or at least we think we do. At least we think we do. I was first introduced to a playwright named Arthur Miller, Arthur Miller in college. And I went to see his play. It's probably one of his most famous plays, Death of a Salesman, uh, at the Walker Art Center, you know, decades ago, before many of you were born. But he has, and, and Arthur Miller uh, has this capacity and this gift as an artist to show us things we don't like to deal with. Artists have that potential at times. They, they shine a light on life that we just sort of like to brush off and not deal with. Well, he has a little bit lesser known play called um, oh, After, the, After the Fall, called After the Fall. And it's a two-act play, and it's much more autobiographical for Arthur Miller. And there's this section, this speech by, the, by Quentin, who is the uh, key character, the main character, and he says this, it's really astounding. So as you know, more and more I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law. He was a lawyer. Like a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart you are. Then, you, then what a good lover you are. Then a good father and finally how wise or powerful or whatever else you might be trying to prove. But underlying it all, I see now there was this presumption that I was actually moving on an upward path towards some elevation where, you know, God knows that I would be, like, justified somehow or even condemned. I would be given by somebody a verdict of some kind. 
He says, I think now that my disaster really began, like when his life fell apart, my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Now what he's talking about is he's talking about the 20th century person who's given up any kind of religion and with it any kind of final judgment in the name of freedom. If we can get rid of religion, if we can get rid of this whole notion of a final judgment, some God who holds us accountable, then we can finally be free and we can progress. But to give up a final judgment in the name of freedom is to give away way too much. It results in what he calls this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation in ourselves. And you know what that litigation is. We are constantly telling ourselves and one another, this is what you should do, this is what you should not do. This is what you ought to do, this is what you ought not do. This is the kind of person you should become. We all know that it's far worse, far worse to oppress people who are weak. We know that it's far better to be kind and be gracious and be, uh, and be a listening, sensitive person. We all know these things. And the question comes, if there is no judge, who says? Who says it's better to be kind? Who says? Now, our 21st century person might look at Arthur Miller and go, oh, how 20th century of you. We know better. This is the trick. This is the trick on how to deal with that endless litigation that we have within ourselves and for one another is that you just be true to you. You do you. You do you. You just be true to you. Figure out who you are and you do you. But the problem is you doing you and me doing me always lacks something really important, and it's this. We are hopelessly, irreducibly relational beings. We need somebody from the outside to affirm us. Even, even with all the talk in our culture of you do you, you do you, you do you, you be true to you, what are you supposed to do? Well, then surround yourself with people who affirm you doing you. There's a scene, you've maybe seen it in Saving Private Ryan where Ryan is at the gravesite of Captain John Miller who gave his life along with others in this company so that Ryan, Private Ryan could go home. And Captain Miller left Ryan with this statement, earn this. Earn these sacrifices by how you live. And you see Private Ryan before the gravesite, the cross of Captain Miller and his wife and his family is with him and he's, He's on his knees and he's weeping and he looks at his wife and he says to his wife, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've been a good man. See, we need, you and I need somebody from the outside to say you're good or you're wrong. When our kids, when our boys, we had three sons, when our boys were really young, we would I'd take time and I would do some art projects with them and we'd sit at the kitchen island and I'd teach them how to draw uh, certain landscape scenes, you know, uh, Christmas trees or scarecrows, different stuff like that. And without fail, every time they finished one of those projects, plop, jump off, they jump off the stool, run down the hallway and go to their mom. Mom, look! It wasn't enough for them 
that they thought that this was good. It wasn't even enough for them that I thought it was good. <laughs> Mom, what do you think? If you and I don't believe in a final judgment, we are left trying to get approval from other people. And that leads to people-pleasing and enslavement. When Jesus offers us more, Jesus offers us more. He offers us an opportunity and a way that we can live eagerly waiting, not trying to get affirmation from other people, but loving other people. And it takes rediscovering, rebelieving some really true things about a final judgment. Again, verse 27, just as it's appointed for a man to die once and then after that comes judgment. Now there is, the teaching of the Bible uh, is complex on final judgment, okay? It's complex. And it would take maybe a series of sermons, but what I've tried to do is I've tried to highlight some really key things where I feel like I know that I've been confused about this, which has led to not having an eager anticipation of hope for Jesus to return. And I see it in our culture, in our church as well. And so I'm gonna highlight a few things here about judgment. Um, and to do that, I'm gonna jump out of Hebrews for just a little bit, and we're gonna look at some of the things that Jesus taught, because Jesus is the one who teaches the most in the Bible about final judgment. And then we'll come back into Hebrews. First, with this teaching in Hebrews, oh, in verse 27, and, uh, just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, some really key things that we need to understand about our future if the Bible is true. One is that we don't cease to exist after death. There is a judgment after death. There's a judgment at some point in time after death. We don't just simply vanish and cease, cease to exist. Also, any kind of notion of reincarnation that what we do in this life echoes into eternity in such a way that if I live a good life now, I will come back in a better cast or a better situation in a future life until ultimately I hit some kind of status where I am perfected. That doesn't happen. That's karma. That's not Jesus. Jesus says, die once, then judgment. Second, or with this as well, you know, Tim and I have talked about this phrase a couple times, what's called soft universalism. You see it all over the place. And it's the belief that we have, it's not a biblical belief, but it's the belief that we have that when you die, you go to a better place. There is nothing to support that. And we believe it all over the place. We reinforce it with the stories that we tell. It's all over social media. The notion behind it is, you die, you go to a better place because you've been a good person. I've been a good person, you've been a good person, that person we all know has been a really bad person, they go to hell. But it's gonna be really small. Small part of the population, because we're mostly good people. That's not how the Bible talks about it, that's not Jesus. So what are some things that the Bible teaches about judgment that can help fuel our faithfulness and can create a foundation of hope to endure life's difficulties? First, 
is the guarantee by God that every wrong will be righted. This is coming from Matthew 16, 27. Again, this is Jesus, and Jesus here is teaching. He's using one of his favorite ways to talk about himself, that is Son of Man. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he, that is Jesus, will repay each person according to what he has done. Now this is wonderfully helpful and a part of the teaching that can help us forgive other people. Do you know that one of the reasons why you are tempted to hold a grudge and not forgive people is because you feel like you need to be judged during executioner? You disbelieve that there's actually a God of vengeance as we just read about in the, uh, a little while ago in the service. Jesus will repay. Jesus does the repaying. And when we really believe that Jesus does the repaying of all wrongs, he rights all wrongs, we are actually able to do what Jesus does on the cross or what Stephen does when he's being executed as we pray for those who have harmed us. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. To disbelieve in a final judgment means that I have to be the one who gets justice when I am wronged instead of forgiving. Now we all have questions and doubts and problems with all the evil in the world and we wonder, is God big enough to handle the evil in the world? And Jesus unequivocally says, I will take care of it. And so when we see wretchedness in our world, when we are harmed by other people, that starts to create an anticipation of Jesus' return. Maranatha is a statement that the first followers used to say all the time, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Second, Jesus, our judgment, when we are judged by Jesus, it will be a just, good true, a just, good, true judgment. The verdict will be right. Apostle Paul talks this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One of the things that, one of the reasons why I don't look forward to at times um, Standing before Jesus is, I've been misjudged plenty of times in my life, and I've misjudged other people plenty of times in my life. I've misjudged my wife's motives, I've misjudged my son's motives, I've misjudged my friend's motives, I've misjudged all kinds of things. And there's a part of me that's afraid, will I be misjudged by Jesus? And the teaching is absolutely not, because Jesus knows everything about me. What will be judged, the evidence for the verdict that is rendered will be my every thought, my every inclination, my every motive, my every word, my every deed. He knows everything about me inside and out. He knows everything about you inside and out. There will be no cause, there will be no opportunity for any kind of misjudgment by Jesus. We will say when Jesus gives his verdict against each one of us or for each one of us, the judge of the earth has done right. Because it's true. It's good. Now, 
my default, I'm not going to put this on you, this is my default. When I read statements like this, that we'll be judged and um, by the things we do in our body, whether good or evil, my default is to think that I need to start stacking up more good than evil. Anybody else think that? Yeah, that's not Jesus. That's what we call, Christians have called works righteousness. If I'm going to stand before him someday, that means I need to stack up a lot more really good things so that when I stand before him, I can go, look, look at all the good that I did. That's not Jesus. That's not good news. That's terrible news. Because when are you ever going to know if you've got enough good to stand before Jesus with confidence? When Jesus says that we will stand before him and we will be, the, the verdict will be in keeping with what we have done with our lives. What he's talking about there is not that the judgment will be investigative. Okay, so we got to get the, our legal system out of our heads for a little bit on this. Because our legal system has, you're presenting evidence to a judge, and the judge doesn't know the verdict yet until, doesn't render a verdict until he hears all the evidence. That's not how it goes with Jesus. Jesus knows us already. When, when we stand before him one day, the verdict will already be set. Because we've already, we've already given all the evidence. Jesus has, it's not discovery when we stand before Jesus. It's not discovery, it's proclamation. And the evidence that's brought isn't for Jesus. It's not like he goes, oh, man, I totally forgot that, Tim. When that one day, when you, uh, when you, you know, when you, when you were really, you know, you were being irritable and you changed course and you were kind to your wife, da, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, yep, that tips the scales. Come on in. <laughs> the evidence that's presented is not for Jesus to make a verdict. The evidence that's presented is for us to know that the verdict that Jesus renders is good and true. There's a part, Jesus tells a story about what the end judgment is like. He tells a story in Matthew 25 about sheep, a shepherd who's separating sheep and goats. And the sheep he puts on his right side and they're the ones going to the kingdom and the goats go to the left side and they're going to condemnation and to hell. And Jesus says this, and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And all the while the sheep are going, when did we do that? The evidence was more for them to say, I'm letting you into the kingdom because you knew me, you loved me, you cared for me. It's not about how much or how little. It's about how true our relationship is with Jesus. Do you hear that? It's about how true our relationship is with Jesus. Not about how much good or bad we do. See, what the Bible teaches, and Jesus uses this metaphor in another place as well, is he talks about how we will know people by their fruit. Some friends of ours were... They were looking to enjoy some apple pie and all that kind of stuff this fall because they had an apple tree that was getting uh, growing well and they were looking for the fruit and uh, this last storm on Wednesday just blew it down. But notice, like, we can tell what a different tree is like based on the kind of fruit that it presents. 
But the fruit doesn't, the fruit isn't the life source of the tree. The life source is someplace else. You can tell the health of a tree. You can tell what kind of tree it is based on the fruit. And that's how the evidence works. Jesus' verdict to us will be in keeping with the fruit of our lives. If we live selfish, self-referential, self-absorbed lives, our lives will be we will see the fruit of that in our relationships and in our lives. If we live in relationship with God and we love Jesus because he first loved us and we are learning to love other people because Jesus first loved us, that will start to evidence in our lives and will show is there a true relationship with Jesus or not? Is there a true relationship with Jesus or not? See, one of the things that can happen, too, is that there's in this room and there are online people who are doing a lot of religious things right now. But you're not doing it out of love for Jesus. You're doing it to try to earn something with Jesus. And eventually, one day, Jesus will say to you, I didn't know you. It's not about how much good we do or we don't do. It's about... A real, a real, true relationship with Jesus. Notice, notice what Jesus says here in another spot. Matthew 5, Matthew 7, sorry. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, well, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? In other words, man, these people look like they're in line with Jesus. They're, they've got Jesus' power. They can cast out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, Depart. I didn't know you, you workers of lawlessness. Don't confuse giftedness and being able to do things in Jesus' name with growing to love and look like Jesus in thought, desire, action. One of our values here at Faith Community is be, that we want to be inspired to transformation. This is trying to encapsulate the Bible's teaching, which is different from religion and how we actually change. And one of the sentences we use, we say, we, we believe that true transformation begins with being inspired and having a new affection stirred in our hearts. What that means is, as the Spirit works in our hearts, we get a new love, a fresh love for Jesus, and that starts to change us. One of my fears often is when people hear us talk about change or obey, we have in our heads, I need to obey more to get more of God's love into my life. When it's the exact opposite. I need to follow Jesus more. I need to obey more because God is good and he already loves me. You have not experienced a day in your life that God hasn't been in love with you. Do you believe that? Because if you believe it, it starts to bear fruit. Now one of the questions comes then, it's like, well, what about all the evidence in my life that I have, that you have, of either before Jesus or living with Jesus, where the fruit is at best bruised? I've not yet had a pure motive, have you? What about all the stuff that we've done in the past? Before we met Jesus, how can we stand and hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant? How can we stand before Jesus and, and hear, come into the kingdom when we've got all these evil things 
in our lives that are still could be brought up about evidence, and that's where it's so important to remember what Hebrews is teaching, that our judge is our savior. You and I are gonna stand before Jesus, and judgment day for the Christian has already happened in a sense. It happened when Jesus died on the cross. We can look forward with joyful expectation, not because we feel like we've done enough in this life to merit some kind of favor from God. It's because the judgment day has already happened. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to us, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save. He's not coming to deal with sin a second time. Why? He's already dealt with it once for all. Once for all time, for all people who trust in him. My whole past wiped away. My present right here, right now, wiped away, forgiven. My future sins that I commit before I see Jesus paid for in full. Judgment day has already happened. We also hear this in verse, in chapter nine. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's why he came to do that. Why did Jesus come to die? Because Jesus knows one day you're gonna stand before him. And you will either hear Enter into the inheritance and the new heavens and new earth and all the beauty that I've just created or condemned to hell. And it'll be based on what you do with Jesus today because of what Jesus has already done. He's already lived and died and rose again. He's paid it all. An ancient catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe some of you have heard rumors of such a thing existing writes this about the believers, a follower of Jesus, happy anticipation of the final judgment. It's a beautiful sentence. In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and has so removed the whole curse from me. Your judge is your savior. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 9, 8, 1, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus already took the condemnation. Your judge is your savior. The final judgment for a Christian, the final judgment for a Christian is one of vindication. One of coming into the new heavens and new earth. The one of coming into blessedness. We can look forward to Jesus' return with eager anticipation because we see the one who's our savior and he judges us. Not anybody else out there, not anybody else in all history, Jesus. Now there's some debate, I was talking to somebody after service a couple weeks ago, there's some debate, you need to know this, there's some debate about whether or not Christian sins will be brought up in the last day judgment. There's some debate. You know, I taught a few weeks ago that Jesus says that, you know, he'll remember our sins no more. He'll remember our sins no more. They are put away forever, not to be brought up ever again. But there are other places in the Bible that seem to hint that, you know, there will be a kind of evaluation of all that we've done. 
So I just want to put it out there, just full disclosure. There is some debate about this, but this is what I can say, because that, I know some of us in the room are really terrified of that. Like, uh, I'm going to stand before Jesus, and there's going to be a lot of angels and all these other people, and all the things that I, only a few people know about in life are going to be, like, announced to human history. Like, who feels good about that? And that can still lock us into a type of enslavement and we don't look forward to the judgment day the way that we should as Christians because we're afraid of what other people are going to think. Two things. If our sins are brought up in the last day, one, no one's going to be looking at yours because they're looking at their own. But the bigger point is that if our sins are brought up on the last day, please hear this, it's, it's as forgiven sins it's as forgiven sins. If our sins are brought up on the last day by Jesus at all, it won't be to shame us, it will be to magnify his grace. To magnify his beautiful grace and say, yes, even that, Tim, even that, Tim, my blood and my life and my sacrifice is far greater than what you've done here. Even that, Tim, and it will be for praise of his glorious grace, not shame and hiding. So please look forward to the last day with great anticipation and joy. Because it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful worship service. What does this mean? What does this start to do in us today? Remember that it's appointed for us to die and then judgment. But Jesus, it was appointed for him once to die and then live again for our vindication. Now, at Faith Community Church, our vision, our vision as a church is that through the Holy Spirit's leading and power that we would experience Jesus welcoming attractive and reconciling presence in Christ-centered community so that thousands more, thousands more would experience him, that is experience Jesus in a gospel-inspired life. And what, what, where that breaks down and where this comes together, I think, is this is that we want to do whatever we can and prioritize as much as we have to to know Jesus now, to experience Jesus now so that we know him when we stand before him. Again, the verdict is, do I know you or do I don't know you? To know him now. I've been married 29 years and I remember our engagement day, like all of you who are married do as well. It was December 25th, 1993. Yes, we were stereotypical and we were engaged on Christmas Day. Um, that uneventful and that un uncreative, right? But my wife was in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. I was down in Rockford, Illinois, where I live. She was up with her mom and they were celebrating Christmas and all that kind of stuff. And then she was gonna drive down from Fergus Falls, Minnesota uh, and be with us on Christmas day. And then when she got there, we were gonna go and I was gonna propose to her. Her mom knew it was happening. Deej had a sense that it was happening. My whole family knew that it was happening. And I was eagerly anticipating her arrival. And this was before cell phones. This is before Life 360. This is before you can track and see where people are. I had no idea where she was. I knew when she left, but I didn't know what kind of uh, roads she would encounter or anything like that. So I didn't know when she was going to arrive. And that created in me this eager anticipation. Because I knew 
that when she came and I proposed to her, because I'm no dummy, I knew she was going to say yes. And that created all kinds of hope. And Christian, do you look at the return of Jesus with that kind of anticipation that you know he's going to say yes to you because he's already paid it all for you? No matter what happens to our country, no matter what happens on our way to heaven, no matter what happens in the history of the world, no matter what's happened, it is appointed for us once to die and then judgment. And that's what really matters. Do you know Jesus? Are you cultivating your relationship with him so that you know that you know that he knows you? Bible reading, conversation guides, soap, missional communities, community worship gatherings. These are not things that we do to try to earn favor with God. These are activities that we do as followers of Jesus so that we can know Jesus more. Because one day we will stand before our Savior who is our, our judge who is also our Savior. The other piece that I would say, and I'll close this way and then I'll pray, is that I was on an international conference call, Zoom call, uh, on Thursday. So I mean international, like so Scotland, England, Canada, Nashville, New York, around the world, okay? With people who lead Christianity Explorer, which is a ministry that we have here at Faith Community that we offer, uh, for a, it's a safe place for people to investigate Jesus uh, with us. Worldwide, worldwide, okay, worldwide, the top two reasons why Christians don't share Jesus with friends, neighbors, coworkers, fellow students. Top two reasons. First, afraid of rejection. Second, afraid of looking incompetent. They might ask me a question I don't know the answer to. If you know the approval of Jesus, if you know that Jesus has a yes for you in the end day because of all the things that he has done in his life, death, and resurrection for you to have that yes. That fear of rejection and sharing Jesus with other people can start to dissipate. It's okay if somebody rejects me if I'm talking about somebody that I know so well with them and I love so much, it's okay. Because you have this eager anticipation that you will stand before him one day and are you confident that your friends and family members are gonna be able to stand before him one day as someone who knows him and Jesus knows? It fuels. Knowing how Jesus is gonna to respond to us fuels sharing Jesus with others because it's appointed once for us to die and then judgment. And it was appointed for Jesus once to die and come again for a vindication. And I invite you, if you would, to stand. I want to pray for us. Spirit of the living God, we gather here today to worship Jesus.
to listen to you and the words that you have spoken through your scriptures and to sing and to hear and to respond. And Spirit of God, I ask that you would do whatever you need to do to soften our hearts, to believe that Jesus will come again and Jesus will bring with him judgment, vindication and condemnation. And God, I ask that you would please inspire us to know you through Jesus. To know you. To know all that you've done for us so that one day when we stand before Jesus, our judge who is our savior, he would be our savior. In spirit of the living God, would you please motivate us and compel us as well to share Jesus with everyone, wherever we live, work, play, or learn. That more and more people, thousands more, would experience Jesus in a gospel-inspired life. Jesus, you are a living hope. Would you please take the truths that we sing back to you in this song, would you just root our hearts in them May we live anticipating your return, no matter when it is. May we be found ready. In Jesus' name, amen.